wonder what the book of Acts means for you. Are you inspired by it? Or are you challenged by the book of Acts? Scared by it? A bit confused about it? Well, my hope is that as we look together at the story of the beginning of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ, that we'll come to understand that this was just the beginning of a story which has continued, for, as we know, for some 2,000 years so far. And although that story is not written down on scrolls like this was, that story includes our names. Our names are in that ongoing story. And so as we look at what God did then and we wonder what can we learn from then which will enable us to more effectively carry on that story in our own lives, I pray that God will open your hearts and minds to the special insights that he has for you in the book of Acts. And to that end, will you pause in prayer for a moment with me? Gracious Lord, we are included in the ongoing acts of God. We are written in to the story of your work in this world. Please teach us how to live out our part of the story in the best possible way. Amen. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That first account, which was composed by the physician or Dr. Luke, was he wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And if you put the Gospel and the book of Acts together, it's actually about a quarter of the New Testament. It's a massive amount from just one guy, isn't it? And there are some distinctive marks in Luke's writing. For example, he uses doctor language of the day in describing some of the healings. And he's very accurate. Now, one example of his accuracy, because you know, he's a fastidious doctor, he uses specific titles for authorities that the guys get dragged before and in different areas. And the archaeological findings have backed up every title in a different area because it's not uniform. It varied wherever you went. And then, of course, we've got the fact that if you read through the book of Acts at some point, it moves from they did this to we did this. And so he was actually on the spot, travelling around with them. And that's another indication of his accuracy. Written to Theophilus, and that simply the words mean lover of God. And it's a combination of theos for God and phileo or phileo for a lover of. And it's possible that he was a rich person's slave doctor and this rich guy was happy to be the patron or the patron so that his personal doctor could travel around and do the research that he needed to do in order to document put down the start of Christianity and Theophilus could just be anyone who loves God I mean it fits for us doesn't it if you love God do you it's written to yes to us, Theophilus, lovers of God. doesn't really matter too much. It's here for us to read and to learn. And so what did he do? His research job, he, has, he was to document all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
And back in this time, it's before word processing, it's before mobile devices, it's before even books, its stuff is all written down on long scrolls. And the Gospel of Luke was probably scroll number one and now we're on to scroll number two in the book of Acts. There's a little picture there of uh, what the books looked like in that time. Yes. And there's a natural reason for having two scrolls, apart from the fact that it's just a long story and due for a break. Uh, the reason is that we've come to an end of a, of a time. We've come to the end of the time of Jesus being on earth. And so at the start of Acts, Luke reminds his readers that the first scroll or book was in Acts chapter 1, all that Jesus began to do and teach until when? Until the day he was taken up to heaven. So this scroll is going into new territory. And we have here a time of transition, a time of a boundary, but we're crossing over a boundary. And we're moving from Jesus being around to him not being around anymore. And it moves to the situation in which we find ourselves today following a Lord that you can no longer touch and see, speak with listen to, question, love in, per, in physical person. So it's a sort of a boundary time here. It seems to me that there's a dec decent amount of time between when Jesus goes off in the clouds to heaven and the birth of the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's this time in between. In order to make the boundary between those two things quite clear so there's no confusion between the old and the new because you see the disciples had to be weaned off that connection to the physical person Jesus look down at verse 11 there men of Galilee why do you stand looking up into the sky and I wonder if you just understand the significance of that moment for the apostles of watching Jesus actually fly off into the sky um, this is a guy they've lived with for three years and they're connected with him as a relationship. They're as relationally as close to Jesus as any person can be close to anybody else, to someone that they love dearly. And they're, it's like they're stuck there, looking up as he gradually has been raised and hidden behind a cloud and they're just waiting, get that cloud out of the way, we want to see what he's doing up there. Can we get another glimpse of him? And so stuck in that spot, that God had to send a couple of angels to say, no, guys, he's gone. He's really gone for good. Because, remember, they thought he was gone before when he was crucified, but he came back. Maybe they thought, oh, maybe he'll do it again. But no, the men in white clothing had to tell him very clearly, it's not going to happen. The next time something like this happens will be when Jesus comes again at the rapture or at the end of time. So we've got this boundary period and some very important stuff has to happen in this boundary time in the transition between the previous way God did things and the new way he's going to do things. And one of the big things in this period is really convincing the disciples that he had conquered death which is just as important for us today to really be sure in our heart and soul that Jesus 
did come back to life. We need to be certain of the resurrection because that is the distinctive difference between Christianity and every other religious belief. But don't forget the nature of God. This resurrection was not just done by Jesus alone. He was never a lone wolf. Rather, everything was done in proper relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the resurrection is a significant event in the salvation history, but there's more than just that event. There are the things that flow out of it, the actions, the teaching, the orders that we have out of it, and a new way to live in the kingdom of God. And we'll just see that. Let's go back to Luke 1 again. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And you, there's the Trinity in there. There's Jesus, enabled by the Holy Spirit to pass on the instructions for the next phase of the operation before he returns to sit at the right hand of the Father. Some people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. Some would like to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But it's really the Acts of God, the Acts of a Trinitarian God, one God, three persons. The Acts of Jesus, empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit, under the oversight and at the will of God the Father. It's the acts of God. And the person of God who appeared in human form was Jesus, demonstrated the truth of this unique message of salvation by hanging around in this period in between for long enough for any reasonable human being to know for sure that he had really conquered death. Verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many... Many what? By many convincing proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So there's lots of teaching going on there in this period as well. Now, over human history, there have been many people who claim they've seen Jesus. And we all know that drugs and imagination and wish fulfillment make people see things they'd like to see. But the difference between you just having an experience or being so out of it in a, like a trance-like, transcendental state that you see things or you having a vision and a dream is when it's not just you who's seeing this thing. For example, what about if 11 of you see the same thing at the same time? Verse 14. Afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, and we reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And you notice they're getting into trouble because they hadn't believed eyewitness reports here. That's a reminder for us. We've got these guys, we've got eyewitness reports. We need to say, well... Oh, need to believe what we've been told, what the Bible tells us. You see, no mass delusion happens simultaneously to 11 people. Or what about something which happens to 500 people? 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. After that, he appeared to more than 500. That's a lot of figures, a lot of fingers. <laughs> more than 500 brethren at one time. And most of them remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. So, what about that length of time? 40 days he hangs around. 40 days. Now, you know, many theories, many theologies and philosophies have been built upon a single occurrence of something. But we're not talking about just once that Jesus came back and someone saw him. We've got more than a month of Jesus moving around, of Jesus teaching, Jesus instructing, just to make sure that they all knew what they needed to know. And another distinctive difference between the reality of Jesus' resurrected earthly period and people just dreaming up stuff is there's an interaction between, this back and forth interaction. Jesus is actively teaching and he's fielding questions, he's mentoring and he's organising the troops. Verse 4, gathering them together. So he's organising, gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so when they'd come together, they'd be, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times, or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now one of, one of the big questions here is about that promise which, you know, if you're a Jew, prophet after prophet has promised that Israel is going to be remade into a powerful kingdom. And so that's what's happening in verse 6 there. So when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Because they've got all these prophecies about that happening. And it's a penetrating question. Penetrating question about the true nature of God's kingdom. And it's a penetrating question about the nature of power. The modern equivalent might be kingdom of God dominance. I had a discussion one day with a pastor about his theology and he said, this is what I'm on about. I want to see kingdom of God dominance because the church should dominate the local culture for Jesus. Well, he's no longer a pastor, so I guess he discovered for himself that it's not at this time that Jesus is restoring the kingdom to Israel. And then what about this primary temptation of mankind the lust and the desire for power i wonder if part that was part of what the disciples were thinking about when they're saying and yearning for a powerful kingdom they want israel to be the power that the prophets of all said it's going to be you see when jesus so when the disciples wanted the power restored to israel jesus countered with a description of the type of power that he was going to send it was not the power to usher in a dominant kingdom. It was the power to what? To be a witness throughout the whole world. 
verse 8. But you will receive power. Good, you want to know. Oh, I'd love to be powerful, Christian. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's to do? So that you shall be my witnesses. Both here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. It was the power to point people to the real power, which is God. We don't get to be the strong one. We just get the power to point others the strong one we get to be witnesses to tell others about what's happened to us what we've seen in the word of God what we've seen and we know about Jesus as saviour and lord and we'll see that throughout the book of Acts it's not the witnesses who build the church God builds the church the witnesses just tell the story they follow the directions of the Holy Spirit and although the Holy Spirit does some Amazing things, it's all in service of this one major goal from verse 8, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and even to the remotest part of the earth. You know, it's very easy to want the power of the Holy Spirit for other reasons. To want the power of the Holy Spirit for emotional comfort, to do miraculous things, which is sort of a bit of an other side of that lust for power and being powerful. It's easy to want the power of the Holy Spirit to dominate rather than communicate. There's a lot in that, dominate or communicate. That's uh, an all-day sucker, that one. To be strong and invulnerable. You might, want him, you might want to have the Holy Spirit so you've got that inside line with God. I know stuff that you don't know. You might want him to feel special and sort of slightly superior to the less spiritual brethren because they're not part of the spiritual elite. They haven't got what I've got. Some people would like to use it so they don't have to think about things. So they don't have to use their intellect, mind and will. They're just like the, the Nike ad, just do it. Just feel it. Just wing it, mate. That's the real stuff. And so it's important to realise, first, foremost, and most important, that the power from the Holy Spirit is so that we can be witnesses to the end of the earth. And although the first time this came, that power was manifested with a great noise, and what appeared as tongues of fire, so that people heard the gospel proclaimed in their languages, although it happened that way the first time, Anytime you find yourself talking to someone about Jesus, that's only possible because the Holy Spirit is enabling you. For a start, no non-believer tells other people about Jesus. Only believers who all receive the Holy Spirit in order to become believers can do that. And anytime you're being a witness, you can be sure you have done so because the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do so. So back to this idea of clear delineation between the days of Jesus being on earth and the days of working under the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives them a significant instruction in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of me. For John baptised with water. But you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John tells them, wait. He's going away and there's going to be enough passage of time for them to get used to the fact that he's not here anymore. 
It'll give them time to grieve his going. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I mean, there would be grieving of Jesus going away for them. They, they needed some time to let that attachment they had to him, to let it go, because there's going to be a different way of doing things coming. And Jesus wants them open and ready for it. And so he says, get in close together. Thoroughly talk everything through together so that you're all of one mind. Worship me with your new understanding of the meaning of the Old Testament, which I've explained. Raise the roof with praise and worship for a new thing is coming, the power to get my message out to the whole world. Well, of course, disciples being normal people, they wanted to get an inside line on the timeline of that power coming in. They wanted to know, when? When's it going to come? We already drew attention to their expectation that would involve the restoration of it, the kingdom of Israel. But I want to point out how easy it is to slip into the great temptation to want to control or manage the power ourselves. See, when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts of healing, prophecy and so on, it's too easy to slip into thinking that you can choose for yourself what you want. And then you can just trot it out when you want to trot it out. But when Jesus says in verse 7 of Acts 1, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority. When Jesus said that the Father is going to decide the timing, he's saying also that the God the Father decides where the power goes and to whom it goes. And it concerns that in Ephesians 4.8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and he gave some, verse 11, as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers and there are more things that he's given as well. And he distributes the power and the gifts according to his choice, according to his choice. Our job is to just to discover and explore what God has given us and then to use it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, an important thing to notice in ministry is that God will not share his glory with another. God will not share his glory with another. And when you learn that, then an enormous weight can be removed from you because you understand the good stuff happening in people's life is not up to you because the power doesn't rest in you. It's not about you becoming a strong Christian. not about you becoming a kingdom beater. It's about you not wanting any glory for yourself. It's about you strongly believing in God rather than being a strong believer. It's a subtle thing. And if you determine never to take any praise or recognition for what God's going to do through you, then that's the right position to be in so that he will work through you. Why do you think amazing stuff doesn't happen every time you pray? Because if you did, you'd slip very easily into thinking, well, it's because I'm so good at praying. Why did Jesus say the kingdom of God belongs to little children? Matthew 19. Jesus said, let little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He said it because... Little children aren't trying to be cool. They're not trying to be competent. They're not trying to be in charge. They simply trust and they rely on their parents to look after them. You see, it's so easy to slip into thinking that our competence 
our knowledge of the word, our mind powers. That's what makes the good stuff happen. No, God will not share his glory with another. He will not share the power of doing what he has to do. He will not share his timeline with humans because they, who can really possibly understand the intricacies of God's plan. And there's one more little job to do in this period in between, little repair work before Pentecost, and that's repairing the number of the disciples. Uh, you see, he was losing Judas. That had created a vacant spot at the table, so to speak, and then I mean, there's a bit of a tragedy, losing, a, losing one of your own kind to suicide. You go, whoa, we've got to get to We've got to repair this. So seeing as per Jesus' instruction, they had all hanged together for a while, and they get into a serious prayer for a replacement. And what do they do at the end of that process? They, they draw lots. Faces us with an interesting question of biblical interpretation. And it's this issue of description versus pre prescription. Is it a story or is it teaching? And we need to balance our interpreting a story so we can discern what part is actually an instruction for us to do the same and what is just, oh, that's interesting, God did it that way then. See, the book of Acts is, firstly, it's a history, describes what happened. And you know, think about the other books, Paul's teaching in particular, that's teaching and theology particularly. And just because God does something a certain way, in a story, it doesn't mean he's going to do it the same way every time. And I think if we did do what they did here, then we'd be voting for the board with, uh, with lots. We'd be drawing lots to see who gets on. And I don't think that's, that's what it's meant to, we're meant to get out of the story. So there are many things in the book of Acts we'd really love to see happen in Mecca. Some of the things which the Lord did really appeal to us and we certainly yearn for them. And I think the point is that all of them could happen if the Lord wanted them to. He has the divine power to do anything he desires. But it's not up to our desires. It's not God's job to do in the church what you think he ought to do in the church. It's our job to come as little children in innocence, without guile, without a desire to manipulate an outcome to listen to what we see through the word, what we hear through the spirit, witnessing with our spirit, what we work out in common agreement under God, and then to think, what's my part? And to walk personally in your part, which is set up for you before the foundation of the world. Good to note though, as we're coming up to election of deacons, to uh, consider some of the things that were in what they are looking for in the 12th Apostle, verse 21. They're thinking about who they should get. They say, therefore it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and amongst us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he is taken up for us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this guy... That word witness is the big thing out of that. Witness to what God's done in your life, what you see in the scripture, 
willingness to talk about it. Matthias or Barsabbas, both of them had to become a witness and a witness of the resurrection. And so that brings us back, more importantly, to the fundamental focus of the book of Acts, which is we're asked to be a witness. So let's draw it together, 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the world, of the earth. We're all an unwritten chapter of the book of Acts if we believe in Jesus. Well, it's unwritten on earth, but our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so that draws our attention to the focus point of being a believer. We're not saved just to save our own bacon. We're saved to keep other bacon off the grill. But we don't have the power to save anyone. We don't have unlimited power just because we can pray for people. And we don't have to be super spiritual and super strong to save our loved one because only God can do that. And in fact, the only way you can understand what we're talking about this morning is if God has illuminated your understanding. But when we leave the impossible part to the God of the impossible, when we leave the saving to Jesus and do our part, the witnessing, the praying, the loving, then we can be certain that God will lead us and he will guide us and he will empower us and he will work through us even when we don't feel he's doing that. Sometimes we feel powerless we feel unprepared and insubstantial, but God still does what he needs to do. And when we take up this mission as our personal mission, then we might find ourselves going to the ends of the earth. And it'll be our great joy to let God do in us and through us whatever he wants to do. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Gracious Lord, we pause before you to know that the power that we're seeking in life is being given mainly to tell others about your power, your power to save, your power to purify, your power to preserve an eternity in heaven, your power to create us a place at the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb and so we worship you we worship you and we praise you and we invite you to do what you need to do in our lives to make us recep receptive to your power moving through us forgive us for when we want to do things for our own ambitions or for our own lust for power let's leave all that up to you and, and just ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. Amen. Mm -hmm.